Um, also, I had to tell you this because it was just really a, a moment of levity for me today at lunch. I had lunch today with with three other pastors, and um, one of the pastors that I had um, lunch with was Adrian Rogers, and um, one of the other three of us asked Adrian what um, how this forty days of purpose. You know, they've been using that purpose driven life book by um, by Rick Warren. And so there was a lot of discussion about that, and I, I just sat and listened. It was it was very interesting, it really was. It I really really was interesting to listen to it all. And and um, so one of the things that uh, Adrian Rogers said was that Rick Warren is no longer his name is no longer Rick Warren. It's Rich Warren because he had sold so many books and all that. So it was the whole big thing about how many books had been sold and that purpose driven life and on and on and on he went. And so. Then he said, which really was one of the funniest things I've ever heard. He said, um, "He said, I'm right. I'm 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 working on a book myself." And so we all thought, "Well, okay." He said, um, the, "The title of my book is The Prayer of Jabez for a Purpose Driven Life, so I won't be left behind." <laughs> I just thought that was hilarious. <clears throat> Okay, uh, enough of that. Let's get to Romans chapter 7, and um, we have taken enough time getting there, haven't we? And that's all my fault. But um, I, 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 the only unfortunate thing about this Bible study, or I'm sure there's other unfortunate things. You could probably have a better teacher of Romans 7, that, but um, is that you're not going to be here every week. And uh, Romans 7 is, is a pretty intricate text. And it requires, it really does, you've got to stay on top of it. There's a lot of repetition. And yet the argument is, of course, just genius. And, um, and it's very important. I mean, the argument contained in Romans 7 is very important. And, and um, I know that providence means that sometimes you're not going to be able to be here. And um, that, that, that is, makes it difficult to teach it um, for your benefit and profit. It is, of course, one of the most controversial chapters in the Bible. I don't know whether you know that, but Romans 7 is just fraught with controversy. It's, it's one of my, has to be one of my favorite portions of Scripture ever. I guess one of the reasons that, it's, that I, I'm so fond of it is because I studied it in Hungary <clears throat> when we had really nothing to do and uh, couldn't get out of the house because the, uh, the front door was snowed closed. Um, but that's really all I had to do was to, um, to study, and so I studied Romans 7, and it just has some real fond memories just in that regard. But the other reason that I'm so fond of it is because it's where I really came face-to-face, I think for the first time, with this whole idea of being married to another, which is, a, you've heard a lot about that from the pulpit these days, but it's, of course, mentioned in verse 4, and that's... Uh, I came upon that in, the, in that study, and it, is just, it has just taken hold of me, um, um, this being married to another. Now, um, let, me, let me say this, too, by way of introduction. Um, I, as you know, used Romans 7, verses 1 through 4 in the pulpit on September the 7th and the 14th. Um, really, on the 14th, I really wasn't talking about this text. I was just showing you other passages in the Bible that talks about being married to Christ. So, um, I really only spent one Sunday on it. I, I, I say that to say this. 
I'm going to go back and start at the beginning, like I've never said anything about it. And there may be something on Wednesday night that you heard on Sunday morning. I don't think that's going to be a problem, I hope. Um, but I thought since it was in September and it's almost November now, you probably forgot what I said in, uh, about it in, in September. Anyway, so to, to maintain the continuity of the text, I thought it would just be wisest for us to go ahead and just act like we've never looked at it before and, um, and treat it like that. So, it is one of the most controversial chapters in the entire Bible. Those who teach it, um, uh, and we'll talk about in the various camps as, <clears throat> as we get close to it, I will say that the major part of the controversy doesn't start until verse 13, which will mean it'll probably be the first of the year before we ever get to it. Uh, the controversy is, is down there, primarily, um, from verses 13 to 25. Now, there are some in verses 1 through 12 as well, but the primary controversy is in those verses. Uh, chapter 7 is Paul's classicus locus. That's a, that's a phrase that you read in systematic books a lot. It's, it just means the classic text. This is the epitome uh, of Paul's treatment on the subject of his view of the law. It is an exposition and a clarification regarding the purpose, the place, the function of the law. Um, it is it is a, a very lengthy treatment on the, the, the appropriate and understandable role that the law will play. Um, in the first six chapters of, of the book of Romans, Paul uses the word law 25 times. In the book of, in chapter 7, he uses it 16 times in that chapter alone. So he uses it in the Romans 7 four times more than he uses it through the first six. This, this is where he is going to dump all of his uh, insight and input concerning the role of the law. And as I said earlier, there will be a good deal of repetition because the text, the subject, demands it. Um, it is um, designed to help us uh, understand the proper functioning of the law. And uh, we're going to take our time. We're not going to rush to get to verse 13 and all the controversy, but um, that's what this is all about. As I said on a Sunday morning, I know I said this much. Chapter 7 is parenthetical. Uh, it is designed to clear up issues that Paul knew would arise on the basis of something that he said in chapter 5. He makes a statement in chapter 5, and as a result of this incredibly profound statement, we're going to look at it in just a second, uh, in chapter 5, he then realizes that he has created in the minds of his hearers certain questions. He then sets out to address those questions in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now, go with me to Romans chapter 5. This is the, the incredible statement that is going to create in the minds of his hearers and readers so much difficulty which causes him to, to devote two chapters to address issues. Here it is, verses 20 and 21. Moreover, 
The law entered that offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, um, this is another example of the incredible... I mean, these are the kind of texts that makes me believe in the inspiration of the Scriptures because there is such an economy of words. You've got a few brief words in verses 20 and 21, and you can't imagine what all is being said in those two brief verses. But as a result of that sweeping statement... Paul realizes that he is going to be misunderstood by some. And so, therefore, he sets out to try and correct problems that he knows that he may have created. Now, let me say this, and I've said this before, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, the subject of 5, 20, and 21 is the profundity and the far-reaching effects of grace. And any time, Grace is properly preached, it will create misunderstanding in the audience. If I preach grace like Paul preached grace, people will misunderstand me. Because the gospel is far better news than we ever dreamed. And so, um, he makes this statement about the sweeping impact of grace, where sin abounded Oh, grace did much more superabound. He makes that statement and then realizes, okay, I'm going to have to use, well, he didn't have chapters, but he uses chapter 6 and chapter 7 to address issues. Chapter 6, of course, we've, we've already looked at chapter 6, but he dedicates chapter 6 to the, this wrongful expression or this wrongful reaction that is recorded for you in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now guys, he makes the statement in 5, 20, and 21. Then he says, okay, this is what they're going to say. Okay, Paul, if I understand you correctly, then we just need to sin a whole lot so that grace can abound some more. And um, that, of course, is antinomianism. And so he dedicates chapter 6 to overturn the, 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 the misunderstanding that he mentions in verse 1. Verse 1, of course, describing an antinomian position. If grace does that, then I can do anything I want to do. I can just go sin as much as I want. And he says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you misunderstood me. And so he takes chapter 6 and addresses that. But then we come to chapter 7. And chapter 7 is designed, again, by way of parenthesis, to correct another wrongful idea that would arise because of what he said in 5, 20, and 21. Are you with me? Two issues that he knows that would come up as a result of 5, 20, and 21. He addresses issue number 1 in chapter 6. And then he addresses issue number two in chapter seven. And the issue that he is addressing in chapter seven is, as I've said, 
an exposition and clarification regarding the purpose, the place, the function, the role of the law. His preaching of justification by faith in the mind particularly of Jewish readers or hearers seems to to do away with the law altogether. And so chapter 7 is dedicated to clearing up a wrongful idea and inserting the proper understanding of the functioning of the law. I hope you're still there. Um, Now, guys, as he does that, one of the secondary um, benefits of his doing that, he's going to teach us what is the proper role and function and purpose of the law, but secondarily, what we're going to discover is you can know, you certainly cannot be justified by the law, nor can you be sanctified by the law. That's just one of the um, ramifications of all that he's going to teach. The law won't justify you. Obedience to the law won't justify you. And obedience to the law will not sanctify you. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a burning issue in the evangelical community these days. Because most people's understanding of their sanctification is replete with law-keeping. Now, so you can see that there is a, there's a problem. And Paul has to address, okay, no, I didn't mean that. Here's what I meant. And by the way, in chapter 8, he's going to return to his theme of justification by faith. So, chapter 5, as it closes, says something. Chapter 6 is parenthetical. Chapter 7 is parenthetical. And then he returns to his theme in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, where he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, uh, who do not work, etc. So he's returned to his theme of justification by faith in 8.1, but in 6 and 7 he's got to address some issues. Okay? Now, um, look with me at verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, there's a couple of things. First of all, you need to notice uh, that we are. this is addressed to brethren. Or do you not know brethren? Um, this is not Paul speaking to Jews. If he was going to speak to Jews only, he would do it uh, like he's done it in Romans 9.3, uh, where he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. That, that he is referring to Jews. But over here in 7.1, when he's talking about brethren, he is simply talking about um, uh, Jews and Gentiles who had uh, both become Christians. He's talking about whatever their, their ethnic origin, their brethren, because they're in Christ. That's the, who this is addressed to. And then he raises this subject of law. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law... Here's a principle that is everybody that everybody understands about law. And it is that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, guys, um, I'm trying to go slowly tonight because if you miss that, 
you're going to be confused in the rest of the chapter. He has established a principle. And the principle is that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Okay, he's trying to teach us the proper functioning of the law, the Old Testament law. And he's doing that and he alludes to a principle. Everybody knows this principle, he says, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Um, all the law, uh, all of the written law of the Old Testament, uh, all the law of God in all of its parts, um, general law, universal law, law of the land, the law has dominion over us uh, as long as we live. That's common knowledge, Paul says. Um, but, notice... That the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. That is, the law has dominion while you're living. But when there is a death, the law of the land can have nothing else to do with you. And this is one of the points I made on a Sunday morning. That is, <clears throat> you cannot sue a dead man. <clears throat> you don't send a dead man to jail. When a, when the, a death occurs, the, the, the dominion of law over a man ceases. When, the death, when there is a death, the law cannot touch me. I'm no longer under it. Um, those words in parenthesis shouldn't make you stumble. They're simply uh, pointing out that the people to whom Paul is writing this understand this very obvious principle. That while alive, I'm subject to the law. But when dead, I'm not. The law does not bind the dead. It's a very important principle because he's going to work it out over the next five or six verses. Now, guys, here is where, um, where I have made a mistake for years in dealing with Romans uh, 7. Because I came to verses 2 and 3, <clears throat> and I saw this statement in verse 2, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. I have used that text in the course of my ministry two dozen times. Always the same way. Um using that text to say that if your spouse dies, you are free to remarry. And very honestly, that's a legitimate use of the text. But that's not what Paul is using it for. The principle that he states in verse 1, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives, he is now going to illustrate that principle by giving you an example of a law. And the law that he uses is the law of marriage. He's going to use the law of marriage to illustrate the principle that is contained in verse 1. That principle being that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. Now, as an aside... I, I just want to point out, notice how Paul assumes the sanctity of marriage. Um, 
he, he states that the only thing that will break one up is death. Now, but again, Paul is not trying to teach you laws on divorce and remarriage here. He is trying to illustrate the principle that is contained in the bottom portion of verse 1. Now, why do you think Paul uses this particular law uh, of marriage? Why does he use this illustration? Well, there's several reasons, guys, and, and, and I hope I can make this clear enough for you. Um, one of the one of the things that he's doing is that in this law of marriage, it illustrates our condition before we are regenerate and come under grace. That is, the law of marriage he is using to illustrate our standing before we come under grace. Um, now, can I just pause just for a second? Guys, part of the problem that we have in responding to this text is that men, in particular, aren't accustomed to thinking of themselves as a bride. Women find this far more easily palatable because they think of themselves as brides. But gentlemen, all of us in this particular illustration are being, uh, all the people of God are being illustrated under this, this image of a bride. So whether male or female, um, he is using the, the law of marriage to illustrate uh, our condition in our unregenerate state. While married, um, that is, in this marriage state and in the illustration, thus in this unregenerate state, uh, man is under law. Now, again, this marriage thing is only an illustration, guys. He's just using it to illustrate that man in his unregenerate state, while still under the dominion of sin, is like, is analogous to a man or, or people under the law of marriage. A woman is bound to her husband by the law of marriage like an unregenerate man is bound to the law. Um, as, as the wife is under her husband's authority in the law of marriage, so the whole human race is under the bondage of law. Now, um, because of the permanence of marriage, Paul is illustrating that man is permanently under law until. And that, ladies and gentlemen, um, is, 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 is the watershed. I am permanently under the bondage of law until until a death occurs. That is, but if the husband dies, again, that's just the illustration. I'm trying to illustrate the point. If the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. 
when there has been this death, when the death occurs, the possibility then arises for entering into a brand new relationship. Now, guys, um, I know this is rather difficult. Uh, I, I asked a moment ago, why do you think Paul is using this law of marriage to illustrate his point? Well, here's one of the reasons, gang. Remember we said when we're starting in this chapter, he is trying to tell his audience that the law has a legitimate function and role to play. In this illustration of marriage that he uses, when the husband dies, the wife is now free to enter into a new relationship The law is not violated. It's not ignored. It's not set aside. It's, in essence, completed and fulfilled. Paul's audience is saying, well, Paul, you've just done away completely with the law. Well, this illustration serves to state, no, no, no. Everything that is being done, and I'm illustrating here, is being done completely with regard to and in fulfillment of The law. So one of the implications is that all that has happened to us in Christ does not in any way contravene the law. The law has not been buried. The law, in essence, has been fulfilled. It hasn't been set aside. This beginning of a new relationship with Jesus Christ is not an illegitimate relationship. Because once the husband dies, there is the possibility of this new relationship. So the law has not been ignored. It's not been set aside. It's not been emasculated. No, it is in, in one sense been fulfilled. And so now I am free to enter into another relationship, a new relationship. Um, and it is a legitimate relationship. Um, unlike adultery, which would be an illegitimate relationship. It only becomes possible, that is, this new relationship only becomes possible as the law is observed and fulfilled. Or, this, in terms of the illustration, when a death has, in essence, fulfilled the law. Do you get that? It's very important for Paul's audience, or in Paul's mind, for his audience to understand that the law is not being buried. It is being fulfilled, and as it has been fulfilled, therefore, there is this freedom to enter into a new relationship. Being married then to this second husband, and thus no longer under the law, but married to Christ, is to break no law. It is not to um, disparage the law that was so important in Jewish minds. What she has done, that is by entering into this new relationship, is legal and is right and, is, and she is no adulteress. See, now again guys, Paul is trying to communicate to his audience that the law has a place. And do you see, by my illustration, says Paul, I am not saying that the law is debunked. I'm saying that it is everything that is being done in Christ is legal and, and uh, appropriate. 
Now, there's one other thing I want you to notice, and I want to skip, and we'll come back to this in a couple of weeks, but down to verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law that through the body that you may be married to, an, uh, to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Here it is. That we should bear fruit to God. Now, guys, um, the reason I bring that up here is you can't do that while you're under the law. You can't bear fruit to God while under the law. It is only as we are married to Christ that that becomes possible. Now, guys, this is where this image began to just uh, grab hold of me. Gang, think about this now. Think about this. We're going to look at it again next week, I think, or maybe the next. Think about this. Here's the image. Marriage, new husband, bear fruit. To what is that alluding? How does a couple with a new... How does a bride with a new husband bear fruit? I mean, I think everybody understands what I'm alluding to. Can you imagine the audacity of the language of this text to describe our relationship to be analogous to that which is produced in sexual intimacy? That our relationship to Christ, that the only thing, ladies, not not the only thing, but one of the things that the apostle is using to, to give us an appreciation for the intimacy that we enjoy with the Savior is that which we understand so well in the marriage context? That, that just that, that blows me away, ladies and gentlemen. That, 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 the, that the, the idea that you and I are supposed to carry away is that not that God wants us to be a servant to a master. He wants to be in... I mean, the relationship that we have with Christ is one of deepest intimacy. Such that it bears fruit. Where does your mind go? It ought to go there. It's supposed to go there. And that, that, that is just, that, that is intriguing to me. That this relationship, and in fact, ladies and gentlemen, I heard, I heard Les Newsom say this. Les Newsom says that the greatest illustration of justification by faith is the intimacy enjoyed by a husband and a wife. It is that kind of intimacy. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I'm not making this up. I'm saying this is the language of the text. Bearing fruit to God coming from this new marriage. We're going to look at that again at another point because I'm telling you, it overwhelmed me. Um, but my point is that can't happen There's no fruit being born to God while still under the law. Now, go go back to verse 2, and we're going to look at one more word, and then we're going to quit. I want you to look at, um, For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released. That's the word. Flip a page over, at least in my book. Um, look at chapter 6, verse 6. 
Romans 6, 6. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with. Now that's the same word that is translated in 7.2 as released. Um, if, 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 in my margin, um, um, uh, this, that, done away, that done away with word is written um, in the margin to suggest rendered inoperative. Um, it is to do away with. Now again, go back to verse 2 again. But if the husband dies, she is for released from that is, this law, this bondage of law is done away with. It is rendered inoperative. The law, ladies and gentlemen, will not chase you down into glory. It has been done away. That is, the bride, when married to another, is released. Released from law. Ladies and gentlemen, go to heaven with that. You are released. Oh, but Jimmy, you don't know what I did in college. No, I don't. No, I don't. Nor need I, need I have to know. I'm saying that will not track you down to heaven. Oh, but Jimmy, if you knew how bad my marriage was, you wouldn't say those things. I know I don't know how bad your marriage is. I don't know what you did to your daughter. I don't know what you did in high school. I don't care. If married to another, you are released. The law is destroyed, or the terms I like the most, it is brought to naught. In Christ, the law is brought to naught. If death occurs, the bride is released, no more obligation to a former relationship or a former law. We are delivered from the power and the dominion of law, and if we are ever to produce fruit, Unto God, that can only be accomplished by death to that law. See, gang, I, I, I just mentioned this and I'm finished. We have the notion that the way that we bear fruit is to law keep. I'm telling you, the way to bear fruit is to enjoy intimacy with the Savior. The whole design of that relationship is so that we can bear, that we can reproduce fruit to the glory of God. And the only people who can do that are people who are dead to law. That's just episode one. He, uh, he deals with it in 40 different ways as this text unfolds. And we'll look at another one next week. That's close.
Father, I do pray that you will give me the uh, tongues of angel. Uh, I do so want to communicate this clearly to your people, not because I want their applause, because, but because they so, we so desperately need to know what this whole thing is all about. The, the mind-boggling news that we are married to another. Oh God, how desperately the people of God need to need to enjoy that. And I pray that you'll give me oiled lips to communicate it in a way that they can not only understand it, but that they can embrace it and consume it to their everlasting enjoyment. Help us, Holy Spirit, to to delve into the depths of such glorious truth. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you and good night.